Chapter Twenty Five of the Tavern Knight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Tavern Knight by Raphael Zabatini. Chapter Twenty Five. Cynthia's Flight. Throughout the night they went rumbling on their way at a pace whose sluggishness elicited many an oath from Crispin as he rode a few yards in the rear ever watchful of the possibility of pursuit. But there was none, nor none need he have feared. Since whilst he rode through the cold night, Gregory Ashburn slept as peacefully as a man may with a fever and an evil conscience, and imagined his dutiful daughter safely abed. With the first streaks of steely light came a thin rain to heighten Crispin's discomfort, for of late he had been overmuch in the saddle, and strong though he was, he was yet flesh and blood and subject to its ills. Towards ten o'clock they passed through Denham. When they were clear of it, Cynthia put her head from the window. She had slept well, and her mood was lighter and happier. As Crispin rode a yard or so behind, he caught sight of her fresh smiling face, and it affected him curiously. The tenderness that two days ago had been his as he talked to her upon the cliffs was again upon him, and the thought that anon she would be linked to him by the ties of relationship was pleasurable. She gave him good morrow prettily and he, spurring his horse to the carriage door, was solicitous to know of her comfort. Nor did he again fall behind until Stratford was reached at noon. Here, at the sign of the Suffolk Arms, he called a halt, and they broke their fast on the best the house could give them. Cynthia was gay, and so indeed was Crispin, yet she noted in him that coolness which she had counted restraint, and gradually her spirits sank again before it. To Crispin's chagrin, there were no horses to be had. Someone in great haste had ridden through before them, and taken what relays the hostelry could give, leaving four jaded beasts in the stable. It seemed, indeed, that they must remain there until the morrow, and in coming to that conclusion, Sir Crispin's temper suffered sorely. "'Why need it put you so about?' cried Cynthia, in arch reproach, "'since I am with you.' "'Blood and fire, madam,' roared Gaylord. It is precisely for that reason that I am exercised. What if your father came upon us here? My father, sir, is abed with a sword wound and a fever, she replied, and he remembered then how Kenneth had spitted Gregory through the shoulder. Still, he returned, he will have discovered your flight, and I dare swear we shall have his myrmidons upon our heels. Should they come up with us, we should hardly find them more gentle than he would be. She paled at that, and for a second there was silence. Then her hand stole forth upon his arm, and she looked at him with tightened lips and a defiant air. What indeed if they do? Are you not with me? A king had praised his daring, and for his valor had dubbed him knight upon a field of stricken battle. Yet the honor of it had not brought him the elation those words, expressive of her utter faith in him and his prowess, begat in his heart. Upon the instant the delay ceased to fret him. "'Madam,' he laughed, "'since you put it so, I care not who comes. The Lord Protector himself shall not drag you from me.' It was the nearest he had gone to a passionate speech since they had left Sheringham, and it pleased her. Yet in uttering it he stood a full two yards away, and in that she had taken no pleasure. Bidding her remain and get what rest she might, he left her, and she, following his straight, lank figure so eloquent of strength, 
and the familiar pose of his left hand upon the pummel of his sword, felt proud indeed that he belonged to her, and secure in his protection. She sat herself at the window when he was gone, and whilst she waited his return she hummed a gay measure softly to herself. Her eyes were bright, and there was a flush upon her cheeks. Not even in the wet, greasy street could she find any unsightliness that afternoon. But as she waited and the minutes grew to hours, that flush faded, and the sparkle died gradually from her eyes. The measure that she had hummed was silenced, and her shapely mouth took on a pout of impatience, which anon grew into a tighter mold as he continued absent. A frown drew her brows together, and Mistress Cynthia's thoughts were much as they had been the night before she left Castle Marleigh. Where was he? Why came he not? She took up a book of plays that lay upon the table, and sought to while away the time by reading. The afternoon faded into dusk, and still he did not come. Her woman appeared, to ask whether she could call for lights, and at that Cynthia became almost violent. "'Where is Sir Crispin?' she demanded, and the dame's quavering answer that she knew not, she angrily bade her go ascertain. In a pet, Cynthia paced the chamber whilst Catherine was gone upon that errand. Did this man account her a toy to while away the hours for which he could find no more profitable diversion, and to leave her to die of ennui when aught else offered? Was it a small thing that he had asked of her to go with him into a strange land, that he should show himself so little sensible of the honor done him? With such questions did she plague herself, and finding them either unanswerable, or answerable only by affirmatives, she had well nigh resolved upon leaving the inn, and making her way back to London to seek out her aunt, when the door opened and her woman reappeared. Well, cried Cynthia, seeing her alone, where is Sir Crispin? Below, madam. Below, echoed she, and what, pray, doth he below? He is at dice with a gentleman from London. In the dim light of the October twilight the woman saw not the sudden pallor of her mistress's cheeks, but she heard the gasp of pain that was almost a cry. In her mortification, Cynthia could have wept had she given way to her feelings. The man who had induced her to elope with him sat at dice with a gentleman from London. Oh, it was monstrous! At the thought of it she broke into a laugh that appalled her tiring woman. Then, mastering her hysteria, she took a sudden determination. "'Call me the host!' she cried, and the frightened Catherine obeyed her at a run. When the landlord came, bearing lights, and bending his age back obsequiously, "'Have you a pillion?' she asked abruptly. "'Why, fool, why do you stare? Have you a pillion?' "'I have, madam. "'And a knave to ride with me, and a couple more as escort?' "'I might procure them, but how soon?' "'Within half an hour, but—' "'Then go see to it,' she broke in, her foot beating the ground impatiently. "'But, madam, go, go, go,' she cried, her voice rising at each utterance of that imperative. "'But, madam—' The host persisted despairingly, and speaking quickly so that he might get the words out. I have no horses fit to travel ten miles. I need to go but five, she retorted quickly, her only thought being to get the beasts, no matter what their conditions. Now go, and come not back until all is ready. Use dispatch, and I will pay you well, and above all, not a word to the gentleman who came hither with me. The sorely puzzled host withdrew to do her bidding won to it by her promise of good payment. Alone she sat for half an hour, vainly fostering the hope that ere the landlord returned to announce the conclusion of his preparations, 
Crispin might have remembered her and come. But he did not appear, and in her solitude this poor little maid was very miserable, and shed some tears that had still more of anger than sorrow in their source. At length the landlord came. She summoned her woman and bade her follow by post on the morrow. The landlord she rewarded with a ring worth twenty times the value of the service, and was led by him through a side door into the inn-yard. Here she found three horses, one equipped with a pillion on which she was to ride behind a burly stable-boy. The other two were mounted by a couple of stalwart and well-armed men, one of whom carried a funnel-mouthed musketoon, with a swagger that promised prodigies of valor. Wrapped in her cloak, she mounted behind the stable-boy, and bid him set out and take the road to Denham. Her dream was at an end. Master Quinn, the landlord, watched her departure with eyes that were charged with doubt and concern. As he made fast the door of the stable-yard after she had passed out, he ominously took his hoary head and muttered to himself humble, hostelry-flavored philosophies, touching the strange ways of men with women, and the stranger ways of women with men. Then, taking up his lanthorn, he slowly retraced his steps to the buttery where his wife was awaiting him. With sleeves rolled high above her pink and deeply dimpled elbows, stood Mistress Quinn at work with the fashioning of a pastry, when her husband entered and set down his lanthorn with a sigh. To be so plagued, he growled, to be browbeaten by a slip of a wench, a fine gentleman's baggage with the air and vapors of a lady of quality. Am I not a fool to have endured it? Certainly you are a fool, his wife agreed, kneading diligently, whatever you may have endured. What now? His fat face was puckered into a thousand wrinkles. His little eyes gazed at her with long-suffering malice. You are my wife, he answered pregnantly, as who would say. This is my folly clearly proven, and seeing that the assertion was not one that admitted of dispute, Mistress Quinn was silent. Oh, tis ill done, he broke out a moment later. Shame on me for it, it is ill done. If you have done it, it is sure to be ill done, and shame on you in good sooth. But for what? put in his wife. For sending those poor jaded beasts upon the road. What beast? What beast? Do I keep turtles? My horses, woman. And whither have you sent them? To Denham, with the baggage that came hither this morning in the company of that very fierce gentleman, who was in such a pet because we had no horses. Where is he? inquired the hostess. At Dice, with those other gallants from town. At Dice, quotha, and she's gone, you say? asked Mrs. Quinn, pausing in her labor squarely to face her husband. I said he. Stupid, rejoined his docile spouse, vexed by his laconic assent. Do you mean she has run away? Tis what anyone might take from what I have told you, he answered sweetly. And you have lent her horses and helped her to get away, and you leave her husband at play in there? You have seen her marriage lines, I make no doubt, he sneered irreverently. You dolt! If the gentleman horsewhips you, you will have richly earned it. "'Eh, what?' gasped he, and his rubicon cheeks lost something of their high color, for there was a possibility that it had not entered into his calculations. But Mistress Quinn stayed not to answer him. Already she was making for the door, wiping the dough from her hands onto her apron as she went. A suspicion of her purpose flashed through her husband's mind. "'What would you do?' he inquired nervously. 
tell the gentleman what has taken place. Nay, he cried resolutely, barring her way. Nay, that you shall not. Would you, would you ruin me? She gave him a look of contempt, and dodging his grasp, she gained the door and was halfway down the passage toward the common room before he had overtaken her and caught her round the middle. Are you mad, woman? he shouted. Will you undo me? Do you undo me? she bade him, snatching at his hands. But he clutched with the tightness of despair. You shall not go, he swore. Come back and leave the gentleman to make the discovery for himself. I dare swear it will not afflict him over much. He has abandoned her sorely since they came. Not a doubt of it, but that he was weary of her. At least he need not know I lent her horses. Let him think she fled afoot when he discovers her departure. I will go, she answered stubbornly, dragging him with her a yard or two nearer the door. The gentleman shall be warned. Is a woman to run away from her husband in my house, and the husband's never to be warned of it? I promised her, he began. What care I for your promises, she asked. I will tell him, so that he may go after her and bring her back. You shall not, he insisted, gripping her more closely. But at that moment a delicately mocking voice greeted their ears. Mary, tis vastly diverting to hear you, it said. They looked around to find one of the party of town sparks that had halted at the inn, standing arms akimbo in the narrow passage, clearly awaiting for them to make room. A touching sight, sir, said he sardonically to the landlord. A wondrous touching sight to behold a man of your years playing the turtle-dove to his good wife, like the merest fledgling. It grieves me to intrude so harshly upon your cooing, though if you'll but let me pass, you may resume your chaste embrace without uneasiness, for I give you my word I'll never look behind me. Abashed, the landlord and his dame fell apart. Then, ere the gentleman could pass her, Mistress Quinn, like a true opportunist, sped swiftly down the passage and into the common room before her husband could again detain her. Now within the common room of the Suffolk Arms, Sir Crispin sat face to face with a very pretty fellow, all musk and ribbons, and surrounded by some half-dozen gentlemen on their way to London, who had halted to rest at Stadford. The pretty gentleman swore lustily, affected a monstrously wicked look, assured that he was impressing all who stood about with some conceit of the rack-alley ways he pursued in town. A game started with crowns, to while away the tedium, of the enforced sojourn at the inn had grown to monstrous proportions. Fortune had favored the youth at first, but as the stakes grew her favors to him diminished, and at that moment that Cynthia rode out of the inn-yard, Mr. Harry Foster flung his last gold-piece with an oath upon the table. "'Rat me,' he groaned, "'there's the end of a hundred. He toyed sorrowfully with the red ribbon in his black hair, and Crispin, seeing that no fresh stake was forthcoming, made shift to rise." but the coxcomb detained him. "'Terry, sir,' he cried, "'I'm not yet done. Slife, we'll make a night of it.' He drew a ring from his finger, and with a superb gesture of disdain pushed it across the board. "'What are ye stake?' and in the same breath. "'Boy, another stoop,' he cried. Crispin eyed the gem carelessly. Twenty Caroluses, he muttered. "'Rat me, sir, that noise of yours proclaims you a Jew without more.' Say twenty-five, and I'll cast. With a tolerant smile and the shrug of a man to whom twenty-five or a hundred are of like account, Crispin consented. They threw. Crispin passed and won. What'll ye stake, cried Mr. Foster, and a second ring followed the first. Before Crispin could reply, the door leading to the interior of the inn was flung open, 
and Mrs. Quinn, breathless with exertion and excitement, came scurrying across the room. In the doorway stood the host in hesitancy and fear. Bending to Crispin's ear, Mrs. Quinn delivered her message in a whisper that was heard by most of those who were about. "'Gone!' cried Crispin in consternation. The woman pointed to her husband, and Crispin, understanding from this that she had referred him to the host, called to him. "'What know ye, landlord?' he said. "'Come hither, and tell me whether she is gone.' "'I know not,' replied the quaking host, adding the particulars of Cynthia's departure, and the journey that the lady seemed in great anger. "'Saddle me a horse,' cried Crispin, leaping to his feet, and pitching Mr. Foster's trinket upon the table as though it were a thing of no value. "'Towards Denham, you say, they rode. Quick, man!' and as the host departed he swept the gold and the ring he had won into his pockets, preparing to depart. "'Hoity-toity!' cried Mr. Foster. "'What sudden haste is this?' "'I'm sorry, sir, that fortune has been unkind to you, but I must go. Circumstances have arisen, which—' "'Damn your circumstances!' roared Foster, getting on his feet. "'You'll not leave me thus.' "'With your permission, sir, I will. But you shall not have my permission.' then I shall be unfortunate as to go without it. But I shall return. Sir, tis an old legend, that. Crispin turned about in despair. To be embroiled now might ruin everything, and by a miracle he kept his temper. He had a moment to spare while his horse was being saddled. Sir, he said, if you have upon your pretty person trinkets to half the value of what I've won from you, I'll stake the whole against them on one throw. After which, no matter what the result, I take my departure. Are you agreed? There was a murmur of admiration from those present at the recklessness and the generosity of the proposal, and Foster was forced to accept it. Two more rings he drew forth, a diamond from the ruffles at his throat, and a pearl that he wore in his ear. The lot he set upon the board, and Crispin threw the winning casts as the host entered to say that his horse was ready. He gathered the trinkets up, and with a polite word of regret he was gone, leaving Mr. Harry Foster to meditate upon the pledging of one of his horses to the landlord in discharge of his lodging. And so it fell out that before Cynthia had gone six miles along the road to Denham, one of her attendants caught a rapid beat of hoofs behind them, and drew her attention to it, suggesting that they were being followed. Faster Cynthia bade them travel, but the pursuer gained upon them at every stride. Again the man drew her attention to it, and proposed that they should halt and face him who followed. The possession of the musketoon gave him confidence touching the issue, but Cynthia shuddered at the thought, and again, with promises of rich reward, urged them to go faster. Another mile they went, but every moment brought the pursuing hoofbeats nearer and nearer, until at last a hoarse challenge rang out from behind them, and they knew that to go further would be in vain. Within the next half-mile, Ride as they might, their pursuer would be upon them. The night was moonless, yet sufficiently clear for objects to be perceived against the sky, and presently the black shadow of him who rode up behind loomed upon the road, not a hundred paces off. Despite Cynthia's orders not to fire, he of the musketoon raised his weapon under cover of the darkness, and blazed at the approaching shadow. Cynthia cried out, a shriek of dismay it was, the horses plunged, and Sir Crispin laughed aloud as he bore down upon them. He of the musketoon heard the swish of a sword being drawn, and saw the glitter of the blade in the dark. A second later there was a shock as Crispin's horse dashed into his, 
and a crushing blow across the forehead, which Galliard delivered with the hilt of his rapier, sent him hurtling from the saddle. His comrade clapped spurs to his horse at that, and was running a race with a night wind in the direction of Denham. Before Cynthia quite knew what had happened, the seat on the pillion in front of her was empty, and she was riding back to Stafford with Crispin beside her, his hand upon the bridle of her horse. "'You little fool,' he said, half angrily, half glibbingly, and thereafter they rode in silence, she too mortified with shame and anger to venture upon words. That journey back to Stafford was a speedy one, and soon they stood again in the inn-yard of which they had ridden but an hour ago. Avoiding the common room, Crispin ushered her through the side door by which she had quitted the horse. The landlord met them in the passage, and looking at Crispin's face, the pallor and fierceness of it drove him back without a word. Together they ascended to the chamber where in solitude she had spent the day. Her feelings were those of a child caught in an act of disobedience, and she was angry with herself and her weakness that it should be so. Yet within the room she stood with bent head, never glancing at her companion, in whose eyes there was a look of blended anger and amazement as he observed her, at length in calm, level tones. "'Why did you run away?' he asked. The question was to her anger as a gust of wind to a smoldering fire. She drew back her head defiantly, and fixed him with a glance as fierce as his own. "'I will tell you,' she cried, and suddenly stopped short. The fire died from her eyes, and they grew wide in wonder, in fascinated wonder, to see a deep stain overspreading one side of his grey doublet, from the left shoulder downwards. Her wonder turned to horror as she realized the nature of that stain, and remembered that one of her men had fired upon him. "'You are wounded,' she faltered. A sickly smile came into his face, and seemed to accentuate its pallor. He made a deprecatory gesture. Then, as if in that gesture he had expended his last grain of strength, he swayed suddenly as he stood. He made as if to reach a chair, but at the second step he stumbled, and without further warning he fell prone at her feet, his left hand upon his heart, his right outstretched straight from the shoulder. The loss of blood he had sustained, following upon the fatigue and sleeplessness that had been of his late, had demanded its due from him, man of iron though he was. Upon the instant her anger vanished, a great fear that he was dead descended upon her, and to heighten the horror of it came the thought that he had received this death wound through her agency. With a moan of anguish she went down upon her knees beside him. She raised his head and pillowed it in her lap, calling to him by name, as though her voice alone might suffice to bring him back to life and consciousness. Instinctively she unfastened his doublet at the neck and sought to draw it away that she might see the nature of his hurt, and staunch the wound if possible. But her strength ebbed away from her, and she abandoned her tasks, unable to do more than murmur his name. Crispin, Crispin, Crispin. She stooped and kissed the white clammy forehead, then his lips, and as she did so a tremor ran through her, and he opened his eyes. A moment they looked dull and lifeless, then they waxed questioning. A second ago those two had stood in anger with the width of the room betwixt them. Now in a flash he found his head on her lap, her lips on his. How came he there? What meant it? Crispin, Crispin, she cried, thank God you did but swoon. Then the awakening of his soul came swift upon the awakening of his body. He lay there, oblivious of his wound, oblivious of his mission, oblivious of his son. 
He lay with senses still half dormant and comprehension dulled, but with a soul alert he lay, and was supremely happy with a happiness such as he had never known in all his ill-starred life. In a feeble voice he asked, Why did you run away? Let us forget it, she answered softly. Nay, tell me first. I thought, I thought, she stammered, then gathering courage, I thought you did not really care, that you had made a toy of me, said she. When they told me that you sat at dice with a gentleman from London, I was angry at your neglect. If you loved me, I told myself, you would not have used me so, and left me to mope alone. For a moment Crispin let his grey eyes devour her blushing face. Then he closed them and pondered what she had said, realization breaking upon him now like a great flood. The light came to him in one blinding yet all-illumining flash. A hundred things that had puzzled him in the last two days grew of a sudden clear, and filled him with a joy unspeakable. He dared scarce believe that he was awake and Cynthia by him, that he indeed heard aright what she had said. How blind he had been! How nescient of himself! Then, as his thoughts travelled on to the source of this misapprehension, he remembered his son, and the memory was like an icy hand upon his temples that chilled him through and through. Lying there with eyes still closed, he groaned. Happiness was within his grasp at last. Love might be his again, but did he ask it? And the love of as pure and sweet a creature as ever God sent to chasten a man's life. A great tenderness possessed him, a burning temptation to cast to the winds his plighted word, to make a mock of faith, to deride an honor, and to seize this woman for his own. She loved him, he knew it now. He loved her, the knowledge had come as suddenly upon him. Compared with this, what could his faith, his word, his honor give him? What to him in the face of this was that paltry fellow, his son, who had spurned him? The hardest fight he had ever fought, he fought it there, lying supine upon the ground, his head in her lap. Had he fought it out with closed eyes, perchance honor and his plighted word had won the day. But he opened them, and they met Cynthia's. A while they stayed thus, the hungry glance of his gray eyes peering into the clear blue depths of hers, and in those depths his soul was drowned, his honor stifled. Cynthia, he cried, God pity me, I love you, and he swooned again. End of chapter 25 Recording by Rick Cornwall